Blog Talk Radio.
revolutionary greetings, Brother Africa, and revolutionary greetings to the fellow panelists and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Father and Brother Anthony, we now bring in Brother Hockey. Brother Hockey, welcome to Africa on the Move. Uh, peace, Brother Africa. My name is Haki Kamati Nishoki, Colonel with African Awareness. And my thing, of course, is, is all about institution building. You know, um, <clears throat> recently, Brother Africa, I uh, viewed online a, a, revolt, a revolt forum that was taking place in Atlanta, Georgia. And it got me wondering about the role of propaganda. And I think as we go along, the society continues to deconstruct. One of the things, uh, the people in positions of power doing a very good job in terms of facilitating propaganda. And one of the ways in which they do that is to utilize these kind of forums. Now, what is interesting, when we talk about the role, role, you know, role of propaganda, you know, it's both measured and finite. Now, stick to a narrative, repeated ad nauseum, and credibility will be established. The recent revolt forum underscores the importance of pre-established narratives that provides no counter-narrative, but merely reinforces the prevailing narrative. This event hosted in Atlanta, Georgia, is home to historical figures who have sacrificed much <clears throat> entertainment and liberation for his people. The fact these these residents of Atlanta, Georgia, or <clears throat> the history of long struggle were not part of this forum speaks volumes in terms of a stated goal of enlightening the masses of our people. No disrespect to the panelists, Brother Africa, but in terms of struggle, it falls demonstrably short. It's fine to showcase the next generation of freedom fighters, quote unquote freedom fighters, but for the sake of continuity, leaving our voices of trailblazers raises real concerns about enlightenment of the masses about people. Voices like the Ruba Ben Wahad, Bilal Asuni Ali, Mukasa, representatives of Jamil Alamin were notably absent from this forum, which means printed information vital for the enlightenment of our people were not present. Can anyone honestly say this forum elevated consciousness or did it succeed in reinforcing the prevailing narrative which seeks to legitimize injustice? Having said all this, Brother Africa, it's important to understand this. this is why institutions are so important. Because if we don't have any meaningful understanding in terms of social, social and political phenomena, then we have to have these institutions to sort of clarify exactly, you know, what has been expressed. Because without understanding what's been expressed, I'm afraid that we are at the mercy of those musicians of power who control the media. And so they can spin a narrative that we, we don't even understand that what they're saying is um, uh, uh, not only kind of intuitive in terms of our interests as a people, but certainly self-destructive in terms of our long-term aspirations. So we have to have institutions in terms of being able to identify what the problems are, uh, deconstruct what those problems are, but create a policy in terms of moving those forward. Because without that, that's the only way conceivable we can we can win in terms of this very uh, volatile situation we find ourselves confronted with as a community. So clearly we need institutions and encourage people to get about the business of building those institutions because, you know, as I stated over and over again, time is very, 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 very important. And if we don't think that time is of essence, you know, all we have to do is look at the current um, state of affairs in Washington, D.C. in terms of just to what extent in the society is deconstructing. And if we understand that's a deconstructing, we understand it has peculiar ramifications for aftermath. So we got to get busy building those institutions. And Brother Africa, again, let me just thank you all for having me. All right, thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'll go to Brother Zabavi. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. 
peace, everybody. Brother Spartan, resident researcher. Looking forward to another insightful panel. And see so I'm appreciative of the opportunity. Okay. And Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. All right. Let's get started for a second, everyone, as we talk about what's going on in your world and the community. Start out with you, Brother Anthony. What's going on in your world and the community? Uh, certainly. Um, the um, the Trump administration um, is showing is showing its contempt once again for, for non-European people. Uh, with the border wall that uh, the Trump administration is planning to erect across the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, on some parts of the uh, of the wall, uh, he is considering uh, putting in moats that are stopped with snakes and alligators to prevent people from going over the wall and uh, doing things like uh, you know making it uh, very difficult to uh, get around the wall, and uh, the rest to human life seems of little concern to him. And, uh, and it's, it fits a historical pattern, unfortunately. In addition, uh, funds that were slated for to aid veterans are being diverted to fund uh, this wall. And it's not coming from the Mexican government, which is what Trump promised during his campaign. Hmm. That's interesting. Hold on to the points. We'll come back to you, Brother Anthony. Uh, Nick Hockey, what's going on in your world in the community? Yeah, a couple of things. <laughs> first, uh, African Women Association doing its first annual Pan-Africa International Culture Unity uh, Forum. Uh, and this, this, this program will take place on October 27th, 2019. And um, for more information, you can give us a call at area code 804-549-7492. And we uh, certainly hope people come out to participate in this in this program because it's so important in terms of being one among many that are so vital in terms of the aspirations of our people as you move forward in even very difficult times. The second thing, Brother Africa, is, um, we'll be doing a, a, a excuse me, after we have doing a solitary tour to Cuba. And this trip takes place October 31st to November 6th. More information, we ask people to call us, 804-549-7492 or area code 202-714-9435 or email us at African Awareness Association, number two, at gmail.com. And, of course, we encourage you to go to Cuba first and see for yourself the great work Cuba's doing and why Cuba is so indispensable when we talk about, you know, rural justice. Uh, Cuba played a pivotal role in terms of his fight against imperialism and set, set an example in terms of, you know, what humanity could be. So Cuba is so vital to the world movement in terms of bringing about justice and equality throughout the world. So we encourage people to come firsthand and see Cuba for itself. 
Now, lastly, Brother Africa, uh, one of the things I just want to do real briefly is one of the things when we talk about this war that our people are up against, often we don't mention, you know, the, the people who play, you know, such a vital role in terms of elevating the consciousness of our folks. And I think when we talk about consciousness of our folks, we think it's through rappers. And historically, when you look in terms of the role of rappers, they've been instrumental in terms of really reaching young people who may not be amenable to forums like this, but nonetheless could be reached through the music. So when we talk about old school rap music, I just wanted to throw out some rappers that uh, are holding high, high esteem. First, KRS, Public Enemy, Chuck D., X-Clan, the Sister Sonics, Paris, Sister Soldier, Nas, Ice Cube, Ice-T, MC Life, Queen Latifah, Most Deaf, Tupac, Khalid Kweli. Now, as far as the new school, those, those rappers I find uh, bring a new school message in terms of trying to elevate our people. Lupe, excuse me, Lupe Fiasco, Emoto Technique, New York Oil, IPEG, Low Key, M1, Matulu Olubala, and uh, Black the Rapper, and also Black the Ripper, I'm sorry, and also um, Black Thought. So these are some individuals, some young individuals who are doing a tremendous job in terms of elevating the conscience of our folks. Even though it's much more profitable to to rap music, uh, to rap out lyrics that are essentially uh, asinine, uh, these brothers and sisters take upon themselves, you know, to actually use the music to elevate people's consciousness. So I just want to do a shout out to those individuals, both historically and presently, in the rap world, who are doing tremendous work in terms of elevating the consciousness of our people. Thank you, Brother Hakeem. Next, go to Brother Jabari. What's going on in your world in the community, Brother Jabari? <clears throat> can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay. Um, recently, I had the opportunity to visit the International Civil Rights Museum in Greensboro, North Carolina. Now, is is the importance of Greensboro in regards to the movement um, mainly centered around a particular incident at the former Woolsworth restaurant where four um, African students at North Carolina A&T engaged in a sit-in at the once-segregated Wolfsworth restaurant. And because of their stance all across the country, um, other students that went to HBCUs engaged in similar-like stances, which was pivotal for the civil rights movement. Now, while the museum was stated for closing, there were um, a group of folks who decided to preserve preserve the restaurant and turn it into the museum that currently exists today. As I visited the museum, especially for younger Africans, they can get a good foundational knowledge of what the civil rights movement was about. But what I wanted to speak on is that which was missing. I found it interesting. I didn't see any kind of um, significant references to um, Marcus Garvey and his movement. Um, I didn't really see anything rough to those of the Harlem Renaissance era, the likes of Langston Hughes, County Collins, or Neil Hurston. But really, to be honest, there weren't many references to what women contributed to the movement in general in terms of what I saw in terms of that presentation. There's very little mention of El Hodge Malik Shabazz. There was, if there was a reference to um, Elijah Muhammad, it wasn't readily identifiable. And something that was very interesting, there was not much to be said about black the black power movement, which is interesting because during that civil rights era, they were amongst those that, um, offered another way to do it in addition to those that wanted to fight for civil rights. Those in the Black Power Movement were fighting for human rights, so it was very interesting they didn't make any reference to Kwame Toure, formerly known as Stokely Carmichael, 
as well as people like him and Charles Hamilton who engaged in that line of thought. So it was very interesting in terms of you have the Civil Rights Museum, but it was uh, more of a reformist approach. And what the biggest, um, most interesting was yet they have this, but yet they can have a reference to Barack Obama's speech in Europe when he was running for president. It was one of the last exhibits you'll be able to see, but yet there's so much other history that was ignored and was not um, made available. And another thing to note, if you do visit their museum, other than um, very limited parts of it, they do not allow you to take pictures of what you see. So it's something you have to witness. Hold on first, Bobby. Let's we'll come back to you. Next, we'll go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. What's going on in your world thank you. in the community? Thank you. Thank you, Brother Africa. Um, we... We can't. We can't ignore the fact that the the uh, the impeachment inquiry is on, and that they are in, inquiring into the uh, the president is coming up with his his grab the bull by the horn part by saying that he was perfectly legitimate thing to be investigating. Uh, um, Biden, et cetera, et cetera, and, that, and he's just doing his duty as president. And uh, the vice president also chimed in behind that. And so that seems to be the strategy now, to grab the bull by the horn and just uh, go defend what he did. Um, also, on um, Brother Anthony's part, saying uh, um President Trump also suggested shooting, shooting, uh, and shooting him in the leg. He said, uh, any uh, people coming over the wall, etc." Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Panelists, panelists, panelists. Thanks, our brother Anthony. You said something earlier about uh, the Trump administration are talking about putting snakes and other things at the border to keep people from going over that. What does that say to the psyche of a person who would, um, or a people or administration that would use those kind of um, alternatives to create more harm and danger or injuring people? Panelists, what do y'all make of that, just the whole notion of that idea itself? Well, I think it's a testament to how evil capitalism is. And um and the and the thing about it, though it reminds me of um of a case in in his in cases in history where African youth were fed to alligators as a form of torture. That was one of the methods of torture that were, that were resorted to during during the days of chattel slavery. And uh, this, uh, and and it shows a, a very callous disregard for human life. That you would torture people that are trying to migrate from uh, from 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 from, uh, from one area to another. And this, bottom line, is their land. And the indigenous people of this land have the right to live where, wherever they want to live. And it's the conditions that exist 
in Central America that are fueling the migrations, which were which are caused um, coincidentally by U.S. capitalist policy. Wow. Anyone else? Yeah, that's, I, that's just mindset. Just the idea of that. How you would you conceive? But it's true. They say that when you look at the enemy, if anything he has done in the past, he believe it has been successful. He never give it up. So they repeat what they have done historically, as Brother Effie alluded to. But just the whole point of, of, of the mindset of even suggesting this type of um, behavior. Something don't sound right in terms of the mindset of these people, Brother Aki. Yeah, well, you know, I you know I agree. You know, one of the things I think is, is heinous, probably the most heinous of it all, is that you create the conditions to ensure that people flee their homeland simply because, in order for you as a as a nation to prosper, you feel that exploitation of someone's country is and is just in the best interest of America, and so therefore you create these conditions, in which conceivably people don't have opportunity for work, people have opportunity to to express themselves. Uh, you create a situation where people are, are against where the wealthy is pitted against the poor. And of course, you provide the resources to the wealthy to essentially not only cripple the poor, but to brutalize the poor. And then you wonder why they flee that country. And when you think about that kind of human being, you say to yourself, what the hell? You know, I mean, if you're going to do something that's maniacal, then own up to it. That is a human thing to do, to say, yeah, it's, it's horrible, it's evil, but I did it anyway. Because I feel like I don't care about anybody else, I only care about myself. But when you do that and then you pretend like somehow you don't understand why people are fleeing, then that that speaks to a kind of insidiousness, a kind of uh, a kind of anti humaneness, uh, you know, that is sort of difficult to put into words. Uh, because on on one hand that you realize that what you're doing is very, very kind of productive, very, very destructive to large groups of people. But you do it, and then you turn around, and in the genius kind of way, you turn around and say, well, you're the blame, that the victims are, in fact, the blame. So blame is kind of blaming the victim uh, uh, strategy. I think it's very, very unique. I think it takes a very um, unusual human being to actually engage in that kind of practice. But now, find out one of the things about capitalism, when you find, uh, I find that this kind of propensity among people to think like that is very, very pronounced. And you begin to wonder. To what extent, and when you think about all these commercials that are taking place in the Western context, we constantly being fed these lies, one lie after another, that people's ability to distinguish that which is right from that which is wrong become compromised. So I think that some, on some level, capitalism is not only an evil system, but it, in fact it plays a big role in terms of creating this kind of sociopathic mindset where the, the, where the, the ability to discern what is right from what is wrong becomes compromised. And so when you got a nation by and large with a lot of people who have a similar kind of mindset, then it's got to limit in terms of the kind of trust that they're committed. So I, I, I think that uh, Donald Trump pretty much epitomizes, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the ruling class mindset. So I think that, you know, uh, there are those who take position that, well, this kind of mindset is, 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 is pertinent throughout the population, and, and to some extent I agree that. But I think it's particularly magnified when we look at terms of ruling class in terms of propensity uh, to commit horrible things and at the same token but deny uh, that they play a part in terms of creating those horrible conditions. So they're going to terrorize the snakes and terrorize the uh, crocodiles so they can terrorize other people. This is unbelievable. 
Um, what was it, what you make of that? Well, you know, I think we have to under, we we have to agree that uh, the, the nation nationalism and and this you know this nationalism that Trump is is perpetuating and this capitalism and imperialism that he's perpetuating uh, naturally cordons off the marketplace in 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 the the um, he tries to rally everyone in this patriotic fervor uh, uh, to to you know in order to increase his his, his clout and his influence. Uh, this is just typical bourgeois ideology, and uh, and you know it's to the detriment of of, of people of color and people who who. Who are born on born on the soil, uh, and even even that's in question now. And so, you know, he's 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 trying to cordon off his market, and uh, and uh, you know, it's it's about bourgeois ideology. Thank you. Hmm. So, Bobby, where the animal rights people at in terms of how they can use the animals? Um, to um, to intent to inflict harm on people. Where are they at on this issue? Do they sit back and say nothing? Well, you got to understand, they're opportunists, and a lot of times the cause they'll rally around are going to impact those individuals that support their funding or their membership <clears throat> or things of that nature. So you got to understand, that's how... They operate because if you notice, it's been very quiet from from Peter or other groups like that recently. So they are their opportunists clearly for the publicity. Because if it's not something that makes a big statement, you don't hear from them, which is interesting. Anybody else? I just find it amazing. If you just hit a dog, you go to jail. Now they're going to supplant animals from their natural environment. For one area and camp somewhere else, totally just to harm and do damage to other human beings. But anyway, that's the mindset of, uh, of the conditions we live under this capitalist system. So, um, Bob, you made a really interesting uh, presentation about your experience of going to North Carolina and going to the museum. And one of the things that came to me is it's this notion of where you have motion but no movement. You have movement, but you have motion but no movement. Or other people get the illusion of doing things, and reality really not doing anything. I think at this point in time, we see a lot of that when it comes to looking at and reinterpreting history, particularly history of African people. There is a understanding that we need that history, but at the same time, that's still a fear factor. I not really want to present our history in a way where our history truly be reflected of what it was and speak truth to power. And you have a class sector among us that is happening to assist in the area of not really visiting the real presentation of our history. So to our panelists, what can be done when we start talking about creating our history that we can ensure it's the type of history that will truly be reflective of what it was and will benefit um, the future well-being of our people, panelists? Because I think what Jabari have described is something that we've seen over, over, and over, over, 
all over the world. When it comes to us, they still water down, don't deal with the real essence of our history, and don't see history as a tool that must be not only understood, but, must be, but also must be seen as a tool to challenge the present existence of the presentation of our history, which has often reflected from a point of view of, of, of the enemy or from the oppressor. So what can be done to really make sure, um, you know, if we're going to talk about presenting our history, preserving our history, and creating some kind of institution for our history, it's history that has some kind of value. Panelists, talk to me. Well, um, well, you know, the past can only serve the present and the future. And so, you know, it's like where are you coming from and where are you going? And it becomes an ideological problem. Uh, uh, and so history, you know, it, it can't be divorced from the present and the future and where, where one is trying to go and what one is trying to accomplish. And uh, that's the key. Thank you. Yeah, well, I, I think that one of the difficulties, Brother Africa, the sense what you're asking is what can we do to liquidate the opportunism? I'm not sure you can liquidate opportunism. I think it's always going to be with us. Uh, so it's come upon us as parents to make sure that we unilaterally make sure that our children understand the history. But I think when you talk about institutions, one of the problems in terms of um, expressing the history in, 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 in an objective and in a balance, and not balanced, but an objective and um, a forceful kind of way, is that there's a couple of things. Thing one, the question in terms of money. So we understand the people, critical institutions, understand that the that the that the history has to be presented in a way that's palatable to those with the money, because if you teach the history in a way which is truthful, then those with the money may not like that, which means that your funding stops. And so, therefore, they got a vested interest in terms of making sure it is presented, but not in a way in which it challenges the status quo. I think the second thing, I think in order to, to, to objectively uh, talk about the African history, then we have to, at some, on some point, at some point, we have to inculcate uh, the role in terms of the, the, uh, the economy or capitalism in terms of the, the overwhelming role it played in terms of the evolution of, of slavery. And I think once you start talking about capitalism in terms of horrors of capitalism, then, of course, you're on shaky ground. And for a lot of people, they're very, very afraid to even critique capitalism. I think for one, on one level, I think people's position is that, well, if I critique capitalism, but I have to, in order for me to exist in this capitalist society, I have to play this game. And so, therefore, I'm not in a position to truly critique African history. So I think for that reason, people sort of um, feel sort of uneasy in terms of talking objectively in terms of the role capitalism play in terms of facilitation of slavery. I I, I think that until people overcome that 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 um, uneasiness in terms of where you know what capitalism really is, I think you continue to have this fudging in terms of the history, in which is presented in a way in which you know you can, which is so palatable to the forces that be. And of course, we understand that as long as you present a history. You know, it's a fanciful faction, fashion. Then we understand that it's not going to be, it's not going to be uh, truly used to empower. Uh, it's going to be merely used in terms of to fascinate, but not to really empower. And so the whole point in terms of understanding history is to empower. So you don't make the same mistakes over and over and over again. But if you don't teach it in a, in a, in a, in a forceful kind of way, then what you have left is a, a, a fanciful history in which it sounds good, but there's nothing in terms of me, that's meaningful in terms of empowering the people. And so, therefore, it's, it's a very difficult challenge that we're confronted with. But the question comes down to, to opportunism, and 
I don't see a way in terms of being able to liquidate opportunism. I think it's simply a question of you now people understanding the opportunity exists among our people, and that we have to you know you know as as a mass. Uh, to the extent that's possible, we have to move in a different direction. And those who are opportunistic, let them be opportunistic. But those of us who understand the reality in terms of the history, make sure we create conditions and make sure that our children learn the precise history uh, in terms of, you know, uh, what it means uh, to be enslaved in America, in the West. I do agree with you because when I thought about um, Tabari's presentation, the first thing that came to mind was, I bet you if you research that that um, institution that they just created to teach the students about civil rights history, the money came from outside of the community, outside of the people. And therefore, you know, they sort of control the content of not only what can be presented, even how it can be presented. To further your point in regards to funding, I did get chance. I didn't get chance to read all the information. But in terms of some of the sponsors, there were some corporate sponsors, some private citizens. So it's the same narrative that you will convey in terms of who um, helped it to come into being. Um, I can um, I concur with the points made, and I think it's important to understand that. That that people who control the funding of these uh, institutions, like your museums and your schools, just like the uh, corporate media, they control the narrative. And uh, it's going to be contested as long as capitalism exists. So the only way around that is that the masses of African people have to be organized so that we can create the vehicles necessary to teach our children uh, the true history, because all histories have a particular class bias. Uh, that has to be understood. And, uh, and it depends upon the class of the person telling the narrative what gets presented. And the problem is most of these institutions are controlled by capitalist forces, that are uh, that are outside of the community of the masses of the people, or they controlled by uh, those uh, bourgeois elements within our community that have shown have chosen to align themselves with the ruling class. And as long as that situation exists, uh, we are going to have to struggle to teach uh, our youth the truth about our history. But it has to be done. But it can only be done if we are organized. So that's one more argument, what one more case for the importance of the mass of the people belonging to an organization. You know, the problem. The problem is that when you put the class interest ahead of the importance of the history, uh, one of the things is that you do so to your own detriment. Uh, we got to understand. And for those brothers and sisters out there who have a slave mentality, who actually think that color of your skin defines your intelligence, who actually think that white folks are superior by virtue of being white, who think that all things great evolve around white folks, for people who, African people who think like that, and for us to teach history in a way in which doesn't challenge those precepts, we do so at our own detriment. And that is my concern. So you might benefit 
individually in terms of, you know, having access to some funds. But the, but the, but the final analysis is that when you have a situation where you're surrounded by African people who are with slave mentality, then what you mean is that when they come for you, there's no one in terms on your side because they don't understand, you know, number one, you know, uh, there is a problem that exists in the first place. So I think that this is one of the one of the paradoxes that we're facing in terms of, you know, when, when people engage in this kind of opportunism, which they don't really understand, that when you look at it in terms of deterioration of capitalism and you see the African people continually under threat, but yet you create a condition to make sure the African people mindset remains the same. In other words, the slave mentality remains manifest in our people and you do nothing to challenge that, then you do so at your own detriment. And this is the fundamental problem that we have in terms of when we when we talk about the whole question in terms of Class, when it comes to the presentation of history, because brother's right. I mean, clearly you have you have Africans who would say, "Listen, if I teach this in a way that's palatable to rich people, the rich people are gonna give me some coins off the table. I get some scraps off the table. No question about that." But then the question becomes, you know, when you talk in terms of our struggle long term, and you look at the situation from our people, particularly we start talking about the social economic reality of Africa, of African people in America. And you look at it in terms of the, the desperate situation, so disproportionate number of people find themselves confronted with, we need those people in terms of potentially fighting back, you know, uh, for our own survival. Without their, without, their in, without their participation in terms of fighting back against this injustice, then we're all doomed. So we have to think long term. This is this crap about you know this my you know this this this, this you know my class my class interests are more important than the struggle of my people. That stuff has to come to a halt. Because it's self-defeating, it's very destructive. It's very self-destructive, and this is the thing we got to try to get these these Africans, the middle-income Africans, to understand that you're not being pragmatic, you're not being intelligent. But when you do that, you undermine your own long-term interests. And this is what we have to convey to them. But the essential point that Brother Anthony making is correct: that it does often guide people's in terms of presentation of history because they do want to be express history in a way in which it does end up. Upset white people. I take the position to hell with that. You know, if if you can't give the truth, then so be it. I'm not going to worry down simply because you don't want to hear it. You know, if you don't want to hear it, shut your ears. But I'm going to express it the way it actually exists, and I'm going to I'm going to talk about the role capitalism play in terms of facilitating slavery. Because in order for you to get an adequate understanding of why people is treated a certain way, then we have to understand what what the evolution of capitalism contribute to. The enslavement of humanity. We have to, because without that, there's no meaningful discussion in terms of our history. So I think it's a very, very it's a unique paradox that we're confronted with in terms of the African community. But, you know, but for those who take the position that I'm about to dollar bill at the expense of my people, they understand that in the long run, you yourself can pay the price as a result of the, of the strategy that you employ. We also have to realize that capitalism is slavery. Slavery. It's the last vestiges of slavery. It's wage slavery, and this is this is why it's it's, it's so so harmful. Ultimately, uh, to the interests of, of of the masses of people, except we have to end the wage slave system. Um, uh, you know this is you know this is we have to understand that and grasp that fully. Thank you. Hmm. Well, I agree. I, I agree. Yeah, go ahead, no, bro. I agree. Go ahead, brother. I, no, I, I agree, brother Moses. You're right. Capitalism is slavery. That is the essence of what, what, what capitalism, is, capitalism is. 
but we don't want to we, we don't want to understand that we don't want to see that I think in our delusions uh, we want to believe that uh, if somehow that if, if you uh, obtain enough capital if you obtain enough money then that whole um, disparaging treatment that you receive is somehow not an issue simply because the money defines your existence but of course we understand that even those Africans who have access to lots of money who have tons of money in the bank we had the big houses, the big cars, and all of that good stuff. Their life is not any less easier. I mean, they have to continue the same kind of bigotry that, that poor Africans have to continue with on a daily basis. And so, therefore, you got to, at some point, you have to realize that your money does not obscure your Africanity. It doesn't change the fact that the way you perceive, uh, it, 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 you're in a way in which says that you're not part of America. And until we understand that fundamental reality, then we keep on thinking that all these these superficial things like wealth, size your home, size your car, defines who you are. And then understanding that none of self defines who you are, that the, how you define has a unique history in terms of uh, in terms of America. And so we talk about the evolution of capitalism. When they talk about because keep in mind, it's so when you go back in terms of successful African farmers during the time of enslavement, or successful African entrepreneurs during the time of slavery. The position in terms of who they, how they were perceived didn't change simply because they have access to wealth and money. They were still perceived as the N-word. And so, therefore, we can't escape that reality. And so, therefore, unless we create a, a situation in which our people are truly empowered and we begin to change the narrative in terms of how we see ourselves, then one thing is sure, that we can't anticipate, we don't expect the, the adversary, the enemy of African people to turn around and see us any differently simply because we have access to money and wealth. It simply doesn't exist. So we have a overwhelming re- responsibility in terms of fight against this insanity, but the only way to fight against this insanity, we have to adequately understand our history. Because without understanding the history, there's no way conceivable to fight back. And this is the paradox that we're going to find it with. I would add also that there are there are some Africans that are for, that are that are struggling to change that that paradigm, and as a matter of fact, that is why there is an effort underway by the ruling class to take control of the presentation of African history, and that is not only shown by uh, things like the Civil Rights Museum and the Museum of African American History in D.C., but also by uh, uh, it also in the uh, media industry, the way we're portrayed, the way uh, you know, the, uh, 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 you know, certain Africans are being whited out of our history, uh, and the why they're remakes of events that took place during the '60s. There's a uh, this is a milestone decade for a lot of events, and there's an effort under uh, underfoot, you know, to rewrite. Uh, and change the narrative of how our history is presented. That's why there's that there are movies being made about historical figures. That's why the Black Panther movie was made, and that's why they're making a movie. They're ready to make a movie about Fred Hampton, which I think is due out sometime next year. But they, uh, but but uh, you know, but in spite of all of our oppression, the militancy of our people is rising. And the ruling class is trying to curtail that. Uh, 
Okay, change the subject a little bit, panelists. What do y'all make of this recent um, display of, I don't know what you want to call it, real TV or what court is this? You should call it, what court is this? What do you make of, of the makeup of this whole process around the case where the European woman who was a, in Dallas, I believe, who was a police officer, went on the second floor, went into the main house and killed this African man, thought that she was at her home. And she recently received 10 years, but the whole, the whole demeanor of how this all played out and the drama that took place inside of the courthouse of allowing the victim, the victim family hugging the victim, and, oh, it was so much drama. What do y'all make of this whole scenario? Well, it it was sort of it was you know brother Africa that that whole scenario was sort of surreal. Uh, you know it's fine you know that uh, you know um, that we we're spiritual people and that's fine uh, that we that we put a, a strong emphasis on uh, doing that which is right and that's a good thing that's very very that's very very good. But one of the problems in you know, pragmatically speaking, one of the things when we talk about terms of injustice inflicted upon African people in society. Uh, one of the things historically that's always happened is that when atrocities happen to African people, it's always been uh, somehow um, um, uh, not as important as atrocities inflicted upon white folks. And so, therefore, when you have a situation where some police, ex-police woman comes to, to your apartment, shoots you because she was at the wrong apartment, and then you give her just 10 years, there's something fundamental wrong with that. I don't have a problem in terms of forgiveness. I can forgive you in terms of doing, doing a horrible thing. But, but just in terms of, um, you know, uh, recompense, uh, I see that, you know, I feel that, you know, just in terms of sending a strong message in terms of, you know, why this kind of behavior has to be found upon, I think that's reflected in terms of the kind of sentence that you receive. So 10 years is not a lot of time for killing some, taking somebody's life. Not at all. And, and, for, and for this particular individual, the brother, to hug her and to even beg to hug her, I found somewhat problematic. Uh, you know, I man, you can forgive her. But all that, all that hugging, I, I, I feel I understand the relevance in terms of all the hugging. I, I don't know what, what, what real incentive that played. So I think to some extent in terms of this mindset, in terms of, you know, um, that uh, to be recognized, you know, by the power structure so important in the minds of so many people, we do things that are somehow um, not in the best interest of ourselves. So I, so I think one of the things it seems to me that when you, when you talk about just 10 years, it should have been, well, listen, just 10 years for killing a man? That's absurd. Uh, you know, you should have advocated for more time. So, man, you can, of course, say to her, listen, I certainly hope, you know, use the opportunity in terms of getting your life together inside of prison, reevaluate, you know, the standards you took, and understand that I have nothing against you, but what you did was fundamentally wrong. And, 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 and justice says that you have to pay for the, for the wrong that you committed. I have no problem in terms of that. But when you beg in terms of hug her and that you appreciate the less, the, the, the very small sentence, very minute sentence that uh, that was handed her for killing another human being, particularly your brother, it's not to have a very difficult time with that. I, I, re- I really do. Because the time itself sort of underscores, you know, just how important the person, the deceased life is perceived to be. So if that life is perceived to be very important being a higher sentence, now if, if, if she happened to be a, a, a black cop and killed a white guy, trust me, there will be no ten years. She'd be looking at twenty five and above. You know, so so I have a philosophical problem in terms of this this 
this uh, this 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 response in terms of this very low sentence uh, to the killing of his brother. It seems to me as though he's saying that the lives of African people, even my brother, is is is, is not of any real significance. And certainly, I, I made I hope that you should get less time. So for me, it was problematic, brother Africa. I didn't understand it. So maybe other people got a different opinion on it. Uh, Haki, I concur with what you with your point. I think uh, I think uh, the 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 woman did get off uh, rather easy. I mean, and I think I think it sends a very bad message in terms of the value of African life in this society. And it reinforces that African life does not have the same value, because I I, 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 I agree with you that if that had been a European that had been killed, uh, you know the the reaction would have been much different. And uh, you know, so I think I, I think it I think you know uh, I think it's uh, uh, you know it sends a bad message, and uh, there's a lot of emphasis. When it comes to uh, you know atrocities perpetrated against Africans, we're expected to forgive, always to forgive, and that and, and most of the time we don't even receive an apology. So I mean, um, you know, I think I, 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 I think I, I think it's unfair, and uh, I think I think it sends the uh, you know uh, the uh, the wrong kind of message. Uh, uh, to people in the U.S. in general and Africans in particular. And if that's not bad enough, then you had the judge come off the bench to hug her and console exactly. her. Then console then the, the, the mother or the other relatives or siblings of the, of the guy who was killed, but consoled her. I'm like, what the hell is this? <laughs> what the hell is this going on here? What's what? Number one, just in Wait, terms yeah. of just in terms of her her role as a judge, she should be impartial. The mere fact that you come down and console her, I'm like, what is wrong with this picture? What is wrong with this picture? What? And the media well, position know, was that well, the media position was that well, they're uh, they're they're Christian. Like, well, that's fine. It's not for being a Christian, but still you got a job to perform. And for you to come off the bench and to console her at the expense of the people who lost their son, it didn't, it didn't make much sense to me. And I, but I suspect it has a lot to do in terms of um, uh, these, 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 these African folks can make some brownie points. I think their position is that, you know, if, if I come to the aid of this white woman, then it's going to certainly pay off in terms of the power structure who see the good thing I did. In other words, as an African person, I kept my place. I upheld the system. I even consoled the white murderer. And so now I should I should I should be uh, I should bear the, the benefits in terms of being a good boy or a good girl uh, in terms of my actions. So I think that some opportunism had to play the part in terms of this this move in terms of you know um, commiserate I mean you know um, you know sort of uh, embracing the the, the 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 white woman who murdered this this black man. Uh, but for me, brother Africa, all, all across the board, it's very very strange. But it, again, it underscores in terms of the kind of confusion that exists in the mind of our people. And so there's no question about it. Uh, the history of our people, the enslavement, the impact on our minds uh, has played a big part in terms of our motivation. So I think we have to, again, look at it in terms of the deep uh, search within ourselves to, to, to analyze why we do the kind of things we do, uh, you know, to what extent we've been damaged you know, by the legacy of slavery. And like Bob Marley say, 
if we don't do it, nobody else can. So I, I find it very problematic with Africa. Uh, I would add another factor too. Um, this this European was a policewoman, and uh, in this society, there's a double standard uh, 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 for, for for police and people that 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 are not that are not. Uh, that are not in a security role, security occupation, and this society, like like all capital society, places a great deal of emphasis on law and order, and on the importance of security in the military. And I think another factor too is the fact that this European was uh, was a policeman uh, uh, played a factor also. No, no, no question about that. that, that that's no question about that. My question, my, my only concern is that why should there be a factor in terms of you know uh, her, her 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 former profession as police officer play a factor in terms of the sentencing? The bottom line is that if in fact we opposition is that the life, all human life is sacred, all human life is important, then it seems to me the sentence should reflect that all life is sacred, all life is is, is important. Uh, the mere fact that uh, you give her such a small sentence and then you come and you embrace her speaks values in terms of, in my mind, a conditioning process which says, you, you know, that in order in terms to be noticed by the power, the power elite, uh, by the elite, uh, that I'm willing to behave in a way in which is less than professional, uh, certainly in a juvenile kind of way in which my behavior is sort of is more um, uh, uh, similar to, you know, that of behavior of a child. Uh, that in their behavior, acting like a child, that somehow you know um, I'll be embraced because, in other words, the, the people in power see it as just another African keeping their place in society. So I think I, I just philosophically, you know, um, you know, and politically, I just have a difficult time in terms of how that whole case played itself out. You know, um, and the whole thing is that keep in mind. Now, I'm not saying I'm not an advocate in terms of long sentences for people. In fact, my position is that, you know, law and sentence are really kind of productive. If, in fact, you want to address a wrong, then it seems to me shorter sentences certainly is the way to do that because it gives people to actually to reconsider their behavior and to actually think about why they did what they did and understand the impact of their behavior on other people. So I think so shorter sentences can achieve that. But, but since we're talking about a capitalist system and since we're talking about the fact that uh, there is this decision being made philosophically which says that some lives are more important than other lives, I resent any characterization which says that African lives are not as valuable as we lives. So, therefore, I have a problem in terms of, you know, um, the sentence, and also specifically I have a problem in terms of coming down and embracing her as though somehow, you know, that uh, uh, aside from being a police officer, she happens to be a white woman, and so, therefore, she's deserving somehow, you know, of this kind of commiseration. I had a problem with that. So, you know, so that's, that is my problem. So, and I do understand that as a police officer, she perceived somehow, quote unquote, uh, better than than the rank and file, because in this society they want you to believe that being a police officer is next to being God, and so therefore the reason they want you to do, believe that is because in order for them to continue their atrocities, they got to have someone to protect them. I'm going to talk about them. I'm talking about the ruling class. So they need the police officer to protect them. So when they when they continually uh, um, exploit the masses of people. Well, if the mass of people get angry, you certainly got to have someone to be a buffer, someone to stand in the way to keep them from getting to the, to the wealthies and choking, choking them by the neck. And so the police serve that purpose. So I do understand that. Uh, but I just, I just think that, you know, um, you know, 
there was there was no getting around the question in terms of when we talk about the quality of life, that what happened doesn't set well for me for, for a number of reasons. You know, some just missing this picture. Uh, I believe it's more to that relationship what they just have been giving us or not giving us. Um, uh, one of the things I heard when they were talking about it at the time, I think when she was in the apartment or something, when he, she had shot him, was saying her partner was texting her photographs, I mean, uh, phono, uh, was te- texting her new, pic- new pictures and stuff. Um Something right about that that picture, that relationship. They're not telling everything. And the brother response in the courtroom makes suggestion she makes a suggestion that he don't think she should get no time. What 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 is going on? What is going on? Something's going on in attendance. What y'all think about that response? Well, there's a lot happening in that case. Um, um, she was on the phone with um, evidently with with, with uh, this dude. She was having an affair with who was. Who was yeah. married, and it's just going like, and on of uh, drama after drama after drama. Um, uh, she was distracted, and uh, I don't know. Just there's a lot. There's this. She claims that she's gonna have to live with it the rest of her life, and all this. She, she you know, I'm sure she she appealed to uh, that young impressionable. Black brother, uh, um, and um, and I, I, you know, if you listen to him, believe her, I, you know, I guess you go with the flow. But uh, the problem is, you know, she she seems to be a drama queen and capable of of uh, faking all this emotion, and uh, and that's the problem I have. But anyway, I let it go. And, and, and brother now becoming a star by the media, so how noble for him to have that kind of forgiveness and stuff. I believe they may pay that boy some money, but I can say this: don't be surprised they're gonna appear that case. She's not gonna do no ten years in this, in, in in jail. I wage any oh. money with anybody. They're gonna appear that case, and she's not gonna do no ten years because they're gonna set the scenario up where it'll be a lot more easier to do that. And also that they have already said it because um, I heard, I read that she's eligible for parole in five years. So uh, you know, so she's probably not going to do max for the reasons uh, we state we discussed earlier. She's a European and she used to be a, be a policeman, and uh, and 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 there's this double standard uh, in society regarding. Uh, you know what? Uh, uh, you know, uh, violence perpetrated by police versus violence perpetrated by other people, and and uh, this is going to be a problem as long as that double standard exists. Hmm, it's very strange when it comes to our people. Things get stranger and stranger. Well, let's move on. We're going to pause the call right now. You listen to Africa on the Move. When we come back, we're going to our first discussion around this question of liberal BS and moveon.org. Is this particular moveon.org, how legitimate are they in terms of trying to fight injustice? You can have that discussion more as we come back on our station break. You listen to 
Africa on the moon.
to welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. We started our second segment of this program. We're going to talk a little bit about this whole question of whistleblowers. Whistleblowers. How we can help whistleblowers. Or do we want to help whistleblowers? There was an article titled Liberal BS and MoveOn.org. Talk about this relationship with MoveOn.org and our relationship well, how to see whistleblowers if they are seriously um, committed to appreciate a whistleblower and how they can help so-called national security. So, panelists, we have all looked at this article, and I guess the central theme of this article is why is the MoveOn.org decided to take a policy to be more anti-whistleblower, Brother Haki? Well... You know, one of the things and one of the struggles in terms of uh, in, in America, uh, one of the problems we're having, you know, we like to have unity in terms of cross ethnicity in terms of moving forward to com- combat the systemic wrong. But the problem is that we got a lot of folks, particularly white folks in the liberal community, you know, who whose mindsets are similar, so similar, uh, in fact, equal to the mindset of so-called conservative white folks. In that context, they are doing things which doesn't challenge the system, but in fact reinforces the system. One of the things in terms of move on refusal in terms of supporting all whistleblowers is that one of their criteria is that they talk about the fact that uh, they prefer uh, whistleblowers who work within the system. Now, of course, the irony is that when you talk about system blowers work within the system, by very nature, that's absurd because one of the things that the system does it doesn't want light. It doesn't want people to be informed. It wants to engage in illegality, and it doesn't want people to know precisely what it's doing. And also because in, in terms of when we talk about illegality, we've got to understand that essentially what we're saying is that they operate, these institutions in America operate in a non-democratic kind of way. So why would they allow you to expose them by simply coming to them and presenting information? Uh, for example, uh, Thomas Drake, uh, the former NSA employee, this guy spent seven years in national security agencies. Now, one of the things that he did, he went within the system. He went to the authorities in NSA, and he talked about the illegalities. He talked about the waste, the mismanagement, the fraud. He talked about all of that. You would think that in terms of him being a whistleblower, that they would respond kindly to what he did. But simple, essentially what he was saying is that, you know, we're losing a lot of money to fraud and to mismanagement, and therefore we need to take a serious look in terms of the accounting that's taking place here in the NSA. Well, even though he was in the system, uh, you know, he found himself in trouble. Because essentially what he found out is that, you know, you don't blow the whistle because these systems have their own philosophy in terms of how they operate. And one of the things in which they, they found upon is people actually bucking the system. And so, therefore, you don't say anything. You go along with that system. So from move on to say that one of the criteria is that you work within the system in terms of uh, whistleblowing is absurd. In other words, what they are conveniently doing is that they're uh, they're ensuring that essentially nothing changes. And so the question in terms of information that's so pertinent to the to the masses of people getting out, move on essentially saying that the, the masses of people shouldn't be uh, privy to certain information that is taking place behind the scenes. So clearly, now if 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 your position is that democracy it works best when there when you, when there's vigilance involved, then why would move on create a scenario in which they ensure there's no vigilance, that, in fact, they protect the system at the expense of the whistleblower. So clearly this is one of these problems that we have philosophically in terms of our white, our white brothers and sisters because this kind of opportunism, this kind of um, 
pro-systematic approach, you know, to politics, you know, it's something that uh, really retards the movement, which makes it so difficult in terms of people working together across ethnic lines in terms of moving forward. So I think move on clearly, you know, even though it's allegedly had 8 million uh, members in terms of, you know, in the the system, uh, even though it has access to all those people, it has no desire in terms of enlightening those people. So clearly, what usefulness does move on serve? Your take on this article, brother Anthony? Yes, it seems as if move on has some political bias uh, to me. And, um, you know, to give an example of why, uh, you know, I, I came, t- I took that from this article. Um, the author indicated that um, indicated that there was no support of the petition for Jeffrey Sterling, one of the uh, whistleblowers. The answer I received was disappointed, merely suggesting that the petition be put on Move On's do-it-yourself platform, where it would not be supported or distributed to any of Move On's email list. After pressing further, I got an explanation from MoveOn that had a marketing sound. It looks like we have definitely done a lot of testing on Snowden and Manning in the past, but unfortunately nothing quite reached the level of member support where we were able to send it out. So another, uh, uh, so, so another, uh, it, it seems like they're biased against, uh, you know, it depends upon whom, whom the organization, you know, is being targeted, that determines whether they whether they will support that whistleblower or not. And it so seems like there's a bias because there's all this, uh, uh, you know, this noise made about this whistleblower against, uh, you know, that that puts Trump in an unfavorable light. But uh, these whistleblowers that uh, that you know, were working for the uh, U.S. government during the Obama administration. Uh, you know, not, uh, you know, the organization's not doing anything to help them. Hmm. Hey, Bob, you take on it. My take is that you have to be mindful of white liberal organizations while there are some that do have legitimate they are legitimate in terms of engaging in the struggle for human rights you have to be careful a number of them are opportunists that will cherry pick what they decide to engage in when it's advantageous in terms of them getting certain types of funding recognition or some other form of a tangible kickback and Moses you, you know, Moses oh, go ahead finish your point Yes, well, let me first say that um, a concrete analysis of concrete conditions is the life and soul of Marxism. That's that's about B.I. Lennon said that. And uh, so who is MoveOn.org? MoveOn.org is essentially the Democratic Party. It's a wing of the Democratic Party that that during the... the, was the Clinton administration and the Monica um, Lewinsky. Lewinsky scandal. Um, 
you know, it was going so so hardly there, and it was looking pretty bad. But so they formed MoveOn.org. That's what it means. Move on. Let's get away from this Lewinsky and the, this problem with the with Clinton's having, and let's move on. And um, and so they created MoveOn.org. Um, um, so we cannot expect anything revolutionary to come out of that organization. I mean, that's it's that's oxymoron. Uh, it's not going to happen. Uh, um, it, it might do some things that you might consider progressive every now and then, uh, um, but you know, fundamentally, it's, it's it's the Democratic Party. Thank you. You know, but, also, you know brother, I, I think, yeah, go Hacky, go ahead. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, when I think about move on, uh, one of the things I think about, I think about a couple of things. First thing about the uh, the white helmets. The white helmets operate in the Middle East, and supposedly they are neutral, and that in fact they are there to to assist those people who are victims of war-torn nations. But reality, what they're doing is they actually feed information to the intelligence community, you know, there in the Middle East. And so, therefore, even though outwardly they come across, at least try to come across as being somehow sympathetic to the suffering of the people, in reality, therefore, a totally different reason, which is in terms of feeding information to the intelligence community. So when I think about the, uh, the, the the move on, I think about it in that vein. And secondly, I think one of the things when we talk about when we talk about orange revolutions, and we all, we always talk about the role in terms of the media and money play in terms of advancing the agenda of the of the powerful. One of the things about orange revolutions, particularly when we talk about the Ukraine, uh, one of the things that's very very interesting, by virtue of the media media and virtue of funneling money, you know, to favorite candidates. They were able to effect, in effect, uh, formulate a coup, coup. So the individual who actually won the first election, uh, he, the, the, that election was was uh, just was null, null and void, and they had a second election. So given the fact that they spent, I mean, tons and tons of money, and the media uh, highlighted this, this, this particular candidate that the West wanted in power, as a result of those two things, this individual became became the president of, of Ukraine. And so, therefore, when we talk about uh, move on, uh, and as Brother Moses said, uh, clearly, you know, when you look at the origin of, of move on, I mean, clearly, their emphasis is not the empowerment of people. They're, they're, all, they're all about uh, elite politics. They're not about in terms of really informing people or organizing folks in a fashion in which they challenge the status quo. Uh, they're very much part of the status quo. And so I think people at this point begin to understand the hypocrisy when move on. So when they approach you in terms of joining and being a part of that, you can understand that when you join or be a part of that, it's not because it's not, it's, it's nothing to do is going to really empower anybody, that this is merely in terms of an attempt you know, to formulate uh, uh, votes you know, for the Democratic Party. And so, therefore, it's a shame. But on you know, so people think that move on is progressive. That in fact is revolutionary. But the reality is, it's quite different. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I thought about when I read this article was that when you look at MoveOn.org, based upon that decision, is they are collaborating with corruption. They have no intention of the truth wanting to get out. By denying the true whistleblowers lack of support and no support, and um, it just seems like that's a indication that they are complicit in all this corruption that's going on. Did anybody else see or share that view when they read this article? Yeah, I, 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 I
I concur with that view. I think you're you're, you're right because uh, because if the if they were sincere, they would be trying to uh, you, you know help all whistleblowers, not just uh, you know ones that uh, you, you know that uh, you know that could uh, you know jeopardize the the, the uh, conservative or or or, 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 or right wing, you know. But all whistleblowers. And we know if you go by the procedure and give it, tell the criminal that he committed a crime, but yet he'd be saying judged, and that crime would never, <laughs> that crime would never go um, punished. Um, it just, it, it was just amazing in terms of, um, you know, that feature, that particular point that came up in the article. But you know, but you know, Brother Africa, but you know, one of the things I find extraordinary, the question in terms of whistleblower aside, one of the things that we have to keep in mind when we talk about these particular individuals, you know, Thomas Drake of the NSA, uh, John mm-hmm. Carrico of uh, the uh, CIA analyst, uh, Jeffrey Sterling, CIA agent, uh, when, when we talk about these individuals, they were indicted in hindsight. I mean, the supposedly infraction of the law happened years before they were actually indicted. And so there's every indication that these guys were picked out as a certain example of because the people in power, particularly Barack Obama, uh, wanted to uh, – Barack Obama, he wanted to, to uh, send a message to potential whistleblowers because keep in mind, in Washington, D.C., where there are people – there are whistleblowers all the time. Information is always being, you know, uh, released. Uh, you know, people always surreptitiously – Providing information because there's so much corruption in Washington D.C. So one of the things they try to do is try to clamp down on it, and they use these gentlemen as as scapegoats. And the mere fact that they were scapegoats in and of itself would you would think that move on would say, listen, the whistleblower issues aside, the mere fact that you wait years later to come after them, that's not right. That's very undemocratic. And so therefore, I had a vested interest in terms of making sure that people understand that what they're doing is anti-democratic. The mere fact that they say that these guys do not qualify as whistleblowers, uh, you know, um, speaks volumes in terms of what the, the, the real focus really is. And the focus has nothing in terms of enlightenment of the masses of folks. has everything to do in terms of the legitimization, you know, of the, of the Democratic Party. In other words, when we talk about the Democratic Party, we're essentially talking about uh, the one-party system. We're talking about both Democrat and Republican being two sides of the same coin. It's not a fundamental philosophical difference between the two. And so move on is a, re- is a reflection of that. And the mere fact that it refuses to convey or to, to tell people uh, that this was going on speaks values in terms of just how corrupt, just how unworthy this organization is, and that people should understand that move on is not a progressive organization. It has, it has no desire in terms of enlightening masses of folks. And, in fact, that it's very much pro-system. And also keep in mind that movement understands, as Brother Jabari alluded to, one of the things we talk about you know, corporate sponsors, they understand they made a lot of money in terms of corporate sponsorships. They understand that as long as they play ball, there's money to be had. Their, their focus is not on the humanity of human beings or the, the, or the, um, or the, uh, the, um, the implementation you know, of, of policy which is geared toward the elevation of human beings. It's more. It has nothing to do with any of that. It's all about self-preservation. It's all about what they can get out of this. And people are being hustled. So people should understand clearly that MoveOn.com is not a progressive organization. It's not revolutionary. There's nothing revolutionary about it. You know, it's just some 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 optimistic white folks. You know, who see it as an opportunity in terms of capitalizing 
uh, money, making money from corporate America. Parties have mass organizations. You know, you have a you have a political party, but but then you have these front organizations, so to speak, or this mass organization where anybody can belong to, but they're still controlled by the party itself ultimately because they they're the key people who started it and who keep it going. And uh, so you know, the move on is is just a mass organization of the of the Democratic Party that that wants to. Be, get the progressives together and move on and to defend Clinton and, and keep going. And that's what it's all about. Thank you. Anything about deception? Deception, deception, deception. Move on. You go on. We can go about our business. Right, let's move forward. We can pause for a quick station break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about theme tonight which is Venezuela at the United Nations. There was so much said during the time that Venezuela was speaking at the United Nations. We're going to discuss some of these interesting points that they raised about their realities of dealing with U.S. pluralism in the West when they were at the U.N. So we'll be right back. You listen to Africa on the Move. I'm your host, Brother Africa. We're in the seat. We're going to take the heat. We're going to find it. We're going to stand behind it. We'll be right back and don't you go nowhere. You have the emergence in human society of this thing that's called the state. What is the state? The state is an organized bureaucracy. It is the police department. It is the army, the navy. It is the prison system, the courts, and what have you. This is the state. It is a repressive organization. But the state... And you, well, you know, you've got to have the police because... You know how we think, organize the hood under our chain banners. Red, black, and green instead of gang bandanas. FBI spying on us through the radio antennas. And I'm hitting cameras in the street like watching society. With no respect for the people's right to privacy. I take a slug for the cause like Huey P. While all you fake niggas try to copy Master P. I want to be free to live, able to have what I need to live. Bring the power back to the street where the people live. We sick of working for crumbs and filling up the prisons. Dying over money and relying on religion for help. We do for self like ants in a colony. Organize the wealth into a socialist economy. A way of life based off the common needs. And all my comrades is ready, we just spreading the seed. Yeah, Live a third of his life in a jail cell Cause the world is controlled by the white male And the people don't never get justice And the women don't never get respected And the problems don't never get solved And the jobs don't never pay enough So the rent always be late Can you relate? No more bondage, no more political monsters 
no more secret space launches. Government departments started it in the projects. Material objects, thousands up in the closets. Could have been invested in the future for my comrades. Battle contacts, primitive weapons out in combat. Many never come back. Pretty niggas be running with gas. Rather get shot in they back than fire back. We're tired of that. Corporations hiring black. Denying the facts, exploiting us all over the map. That's why I write the shit I write in my rap. It's documented, I meant it. Every day of the week, I live in it, breathing it. It's more than just fucking believing it. I'm holding in one, rolling up my sleeves and shit. It's C-Lo for push-ups now. Many headed for one conclusion. Niggas ain't ready for revolution. Yeah, I've been blackmailed. Live a third of his life in a jail cell. Cause the world is controlled by the white male. And the people don't never get justice. And the women don't never get respected And the problems don't never get solved And the jobs don't never pay enough So the rent always be late Can you relate? We living in a police state Chaos. 
They say that um, there was that peace, and that was one of the reports that they gave in the United Nations. How does that differ from historically what we have been hearing so far about Venezuela, panelists? Uh, we've been hearing that Venezuela is in a state of war, that the people are uh, are, are are starving, uh, you know, that that that, that they're uh, sick, and and, uh, and some of them are, but that is because of the blockade that's been implemented by the U.S., which does not allow, uh, you, uh, you know, for Venezuela to get adequate food and medical supplies for its entire population. But uh, what is not told is that the Venezuelans have are are adapting to the difficult situation and they're doing the best they can. And um, you know, and I think it's because of the uh, the blockade, and because Venezuela has not had sufficient time to diversify its agriculture, that uh, that that some of these difficulties arise. Anybody else like to respond? Okay. Let's go to another point they made. It talks about how the media says nothing about the system of social protection. When we talk about social protection, what are we saying, um, panelists? We say social protection. But we know in the U.S. there are no social protection for the people here. But that was another really interesting point, that we don't talk about the social protection in Venezuela. Anyone would like to scrap rate on, on that particular issue, position? I'll Brother try Hackey? to. Uh, okay. Go Brother Hackey, and then we'll come back to you after. Yeah, well, I, I, I think one of the things is that, you know, over the last three years, uh, Venezuela economy has lost something like $130 billion as a result of the blockade and the death of Venezuelan assets. And despite all of that, the whole socialist principles in terms of the value of life remains. And so given the limited resources that the Venezuelans have access to, they use that, use that to ensure that people have the essentials in terms of food and shelter that people need in terms of subsistence. So it speaks values in terms of the principle uh, or their, their willingness uh, to support socialism and how much they really believe in socialism. So I think that so when you talk about when you contract of the United States in terms of a country that's quote unquote one of the, the second wealthiest country in the world, and you look at it in terms of the devastating poverty that, that inflicts so many of its people, then you get a fundamental understanding there's a, a real philosophical difference between the mindset of those in Venezuela versus those in the U.S. In the U.S. position is that you know uh, you know if you don't have food you have shelter you don't have access to whatever, tough. That's your fault. Uh, in other words, the U.S. is more it doesn't have a problem in terms of seeing human beings as less than human beings, and so therefore, uh, when you look at terms of social policy, it sort of reflects that perception that or that belief uh, that somehow that if you don't have access to money, then you're nobody. Uh, the difference is totally different. The definition is that irrespective of your, your, your circumstances economically, that doesn't negate your humanity. You're still human, whether you're a, a person on the street or a wealthy person, you know, in a big house. It doesn't matter. Uh, so it's clear there's a, a, a convergence, a divergence, actually, of thoughts in terms of how human beings should be treated. Anyone else want me to respond? Brother Anthony, you said something about... Yes, I want to add also that that the, 
that she points out the world media says nothing about the system of social protection that exists in Venezuela, and that includes, without distinction, almost 19 million Venezuelans. In other words, in other words, regardless of what sector you belong to, even if you're part of the political opposition, uh, you know the uh, the protections uh, you know extend to every sector of Venezuelan society: women, children, uh, you know the indigenous people, and 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 the Africans that live in Venezuela. So it is much more. There's much more social protection in Venezuela than exists in a capitalist country like the U.S. You know, what's, what's interesting, the sister raised a point when she talked about the fact uh, that 26 people in the world have more wealth than 3.8 billion of the poorest people on the planet. Mm-hmm. Or that 3.8 billion people, poor people on the planet who don't have access to anything, uh, you know, they can appreciate a country like, like uh, Venezuela. But, you know, they, I think, you know, um, it's important that those who have the uh, position, uh, certainly those who have the capacity in terms of the bureaucracy, that when you look at the 3.8 billion people exist in the world, it seems to me you have an obligation in terms of standing up and saying, listen, enough of insanity is enough. And I think Venezuela's position is that this, this is pure insanity, insanity, and therefore not, we're not wanting to be a part of that uh, insanity. And so, therefore, I think because it's setting such a good example in terms of, you know, using the legal resources for the benefit of its people, it speaks values in terms of the possibilities or, or potential uh, uh, potential uh, development of so many people throughout the world, you know, who are, so, who are lacking so much in terms of material need. So I think uh, Venezuela is, 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 is uh, in terms of um, social policy, outstanding. So, I, I, you know, I think more and more increasingly more and more people around the world are beginning to understand that this whole thing in terms of capitalism you know, it's, 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 it's not the way to go. You know, sticking with that point, brother Hockey, that's real, that's a mind that that that's that's, that's mind shocking to to talk about. Twenty six people possess the same wealth of three point eight billion poorest people in the world. How can that be? How can that be? How do you do that? How do we do that? How does the capitalist do that? Where well, 26 people can have that kind of wealth, as much wealth as, what did you 3. say? 3.8 billion 3. people. 3.8 people? Do we, yeah, have, do, do we understand the significance of that? But go ahead, Brother Anthony or Brother Jabari. Go ahead. If you're talking about that, it's all the question of what kind of economic model you're using. Because if you use any kind of economic model that puts its trust in a fiat system with based off of that which is temporary, which can be used up, that which is a natural can be replenished. You're talking about a situation where control, acquisition, and dominance is the name of the game. So if you control those areas such as utilities, uh, media, um, food production, et cetera, that are valuable, you're able to accumulate a mass amount of wealth because you're going to do that. You're going to do um, things purposely to make sure there's shortage and not focus on what's good for everybody. So that's what you're talking about creating a permanent growth and balance, unfortunately. But I don't mean to say permanent because it can be undone, but in terms of the conditions you create, that's your goal. But you know, but you know, I concur. Concept, but you know, where, Anthony? 
yeah, no, I was going to add that um, that also one of the characteristics of uh, of uh, finance capital, which uh, which is at its highest form, imperialism, is that it represents a concentration of control of production of the productive process, and and as imperialism uh, develops, uh, wealth becomes more and more concentrated. That is how. Uh, 26 people can have more as much wealth as 3.8 billion worldwide. But you know, but even but even in terms of capitalism, uh, when we talk about productivity, the reality is that even in the context of capitalism, one person, one person simply cannot have can't produce. A uh, 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 billion dollars worth of uh, uh, worth of surplus—it simply can't be done. And so, so when we talk about in terms of you know one person having access to to billions of billions of dollars, and essentially what we're saying, this is not an economic construct. This is a political construct. So one of the things, and when we talk about uh, being a, 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 a political construct, then what happens is that you know they're creating a situation, they're creating a scenario or narrative which says. That it's possible for these people to accumulate all this kind of wealth, even though they're doing nothing in terms of creating it, creating it themselves. Uh, but the, but since the, the 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 popular wisdom is that the system the system says that we we say it's justifiable, uh, and because they say it's justifiable, it's just it's, it's, it has it has legitimacy. But in a, but in the economic realm, it has no legitimacy. And one of the reasons why capitalism can't stand is because when you have this kind of this disparity between the have and the have nots. Uh, it creates real problems in terms of just being able to and just being able to purchase. And one of the biggest uh, one of the biggest concerns in terms of capitalism is consumerism. And one of the things in terms of if, if you got 3.8 billion people on the planet who who are poor, who are, who are impoverished, deeply impoverished, then the problem is how can they buy the products that you produce? They can't. So this is one of the fundamental problems in terms of capitalism. And the reason why people have to understand. And when they start getting on talk about it and talk about austerity, when they talk about giving more money to the powerful, the rich, the rich people controlling all the means of production, controlling the, the resources of the land, when they start talking about all this stuff, understand that it has nothing to do in terms of economics. It has everything to do with power. And this is why people have to understand this important. It's important to understand this, that they're not talking about economics. They're talking about power. And if we don't understand it, then we sit back and we look at this and we say, oh, well, that's, that's the way it is. It's justifiable. Because the system says justifiable. No, it's not. Even in the context of capitalism, this is absurd. This is crazy. But we have to understand the distinction between economic motives and political motives. This is pure politics. It has nothing to do with economics. Economics say that this is simply unsustainable. It's insane that no one individual can accumulate this kind of accumulate this kind of wealth based upon productivity. So clearly, you know, we understand that because it's all it's all about power. Uh, the, the people throughout the world, working people, uh, uh, poor people, uh, have an obligation to resist because non-resistance means a certain death. Because these people, these 26 people who have absolute control of the world resources, don't give a damn whether these people live or die. And matter of fact, one of the incentives in terms of the ruling leaders, they want to create a scenario in which more and more people die off. They're trying to consecrate ways in which they can kill people off. So whether we're talking about uh, a vaccine, using a vaccine to eliminate people or spread of diseases to kill people or just sheer po- uh, poverty or famine or whatever it is it takes 
in terms of eliminate large number of people on the planet, that's what they're committed to. So working people have to understand the reality is that, you know, um, irrespective of how bad the situation is, nothing's fundamentally going to change in that, you know, unless, you know, working people, uh, poor people, work together uh, in terms of trying to bring about a new paradigm. And without a new paradigm, the situation for poor people around the world is dire. Well, well, that's what Marx brought to the table in terms of economics is the concept of political economy. And, um, and politics determines economics always has and always will. And so, you know, what we see here is socialized production and private appropriation. It takes a lot of people to, to, to working together and cooperating together to bring about the production and, and uh but when when the goods and services are accumulated it's privately appropriated this this single person or handful of people who benefit from all that labor and that's the that's the without socialized appropriation you know there's going to be exploitation and so that's what Venezuela and Cuba and China and and the Soviet Union were all about trying to bring about uh, uh, socialized production and socialized appropriation. Thank you. You know, panelists, you know, when they say everything's connected, we need to understand what goes on around the other side of the globe affects us. What do you make of the significant point that has been raised and really is really been said about it, but it is having an impact on all of us? It is question are they trying to commodify uh, the Amazon? They're trying to use the Amazon as another means to make money and cut trees down and help destroy the balance of the earth. Your response to this whole question of commodification of our Amazon. What kind of impact Actually, is having on our people? Yes, go ahead, Brother Anthony. It fits into a pattern of imperialism. Everything, uh, you know, when the, the 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 character feature of this stage of capitalism, it turns everything into a commodity. But what this, what's going on in Amazon, can have ramifications for the entire planet, and it's important that people understand that, because uh, the deforestation and the des- desertification of the planet. Uh, you know, uh, affects, uh, you know, the environment, the world food supply, and the ability of people to feed themselves. And also, and also for those who care about, and also cause the, the distinction of, uh, of uh, flora and fauna, which again affects human beings worldwide. And environmental disasters do not respect political boundaries. And uh, and unfortunately, it is the poor that bear the brunt, even though they don't directly cause those uh, situations. So what's going on in Amazon has a definitely has definite ramifications for people around the world. Well, there's there's no question about that. When you talk about common common carbon dioxide, uh, 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 trees play a big part in terms of the control of carbon dioxide on the planet. And certainly carbon dioxide does play a part in terms of the, the, the overheating of the, prop or the planet. 
it plays a small, not a not a not a big part, but it does play a part. And I think the biggest part when we talk about in terms of destruction of the planet has more to do in terms of UV radiation, in terms of the holes uh, in the ozone layer, and also we don't talk about that. Carbon dioxide does play a role, and one of the things we talk about the health of human beings, and we talk about controlled carbon dioxide levels. Uh, taking those those trees down is absurd. Of course, as far as the uh, West is concerned, but with people like the United States and particular people like Bolsonaro or Brazil, the opposition is that they don't care because here's an opportunity in terms of you know, more more grazing land for the cattle, uh, access you know for growing you know all kinds of crops in terms of for sale, and so they're looking at in terms of a business venture. They have no respect in terms of uh, uh, the, the, uh, the the Amazon you know being a, uh, a so vital to, to to people's ability to breathe on this planet. They don't care about that. They can care less about that. And this is the fundamental problem in terms of capitalism, in terms of the inability to empathize, or to, 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 to empathize the plight of human beings. It has, it has no ability to do that. And, and the question is, what are, you, what are you going to do? Given the system in terms of uh, is, 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 is lack of uh, concern for human beings, what are you going to do? And clearly, uh, nothing's going to stop them in terms of their pursuit of money at all costs. Even if it means destruction of the planet, destruction of human beings. None of that is phased them. They could care less. Uh, so clearly, you know, the problem is what are we going to do? And I, my, my position is that if we don't have people who are adequately informed in terms of the situation that we're confronted with, then, you know, we're essentially all in danger. And no amount of feigning ignorance is going to save us. Uh, we have to confront the reality that, you know, that this is pure insanity. Uh, this system is pure insanity. And if we don't do so, if we want to perpetuate it, then we do so at our own demise. And we have to understand the fundamental reality. So what does it take to get people to understand that reality? I don't know. Uh, the situation is so, peril, so perilous out here. In term, you know, the planet is, in, planet is in bad shape. And these people don't give a damn. So, I, I, you know, uh, I, I don't know, Brother Africa. Bolsonaro's position was that when, when nations around the world or something, attempted to help him control those fires, his position was that we need your help. Because in his mind, it was more important they burn them down because one, you do achieve two things. One, he can force the indigenous people off the land, and secondly, there's more room for the cattle, more room in terms of growing things, in terms of sales. And so that was their motivation. They don't care about the, 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 the carbon dioxide in terms of implications for people's ability to breathe on this planet. They don't care about that. So clearly, Brother Africa, uh, you know, this is, this is all uh, um, uh, very much part of the capitalist mindset, and we have to work to, to, to change this paradigm because we don't have any choice. Well, capitalism is the profit drive, um, the profit drive to drive to get more and more profits. And the profits obviously goes to a, a handful of people. And uh, it's, uh, so it's in the interest of a handful of people that these things go on, that that uh, the, for, the forest deforestation and, and all the various um, Trump has, has made his his, his his mission was to undo everything Obama had done in terms of the environment, and he's he's pretty much done that, and uh, and it's, but he's he's opening it up for the profits. I mean, he's a profiteer. He's he's a capitalist. He's he's a capitalist in power in in the in the in the government, and uh, and that's why he's even more so dangerous. But uh, uh, it's that profit drive which leads to imperialism. Which which leads to wars and uh, 
It's the same old thing. Thank you. You know, panelists, I think one of the real interesting points that um, she makes in terms of U.S. behavior and the West behavior in general, historically, as far back as the creation of the Pope and how he just uh, wielded power based upon no particular reason, just because he can, he issued these decrees. What do y'all make of this reality when he stated that between 2015 in 2019, the government of the United States has decreed more than 350 unilateral uh, measures against the Polarian Republic of Venezuela, which include illegal appropriations of all our resources and assets abroad, total financial and commercial blockade, impairing their health care, education, food supply aimed principally at suffocating the Venezuelan economy and subjugating one people. But this question decree, they just they just do it because they can. What do y'all make of this question? How do you how do you create a scenario where you will not be in a position where people can just impose their will on you because they want to? No justification just because they can. It's about a power grab. Uh, Venezuela, up until 1999, was a neo-colony of the U.S., and uh, the U.S. controlled the resources of Venezuela. And what the U.S. uh, ruling class wants to do is regain control of the resources and labor of Venezuela to serve their own interests. And that is why it is trying all these measures to subjugate the Venezuelan people. And they tried even something unprecedented, which is the state the stage a coup attempt publicly. Didn't they didn't even make any attempt to hide it? The publicly stage a coup attempt. Something the CIA used to do routinely during the fifties and sixties. But they openly did that and did and, and, and made no attempt to hide it. But the people uh, working together in Venezuela resisted that attempt. Isn't there an oxymoron or a contradiction you're talking about operating on decrees versus being democratic and this whole concept of freedom? Oxy, oxymoron for capitalism, about Africa? I don't think such things are oxymoron in context of capitalism uh, because capitalism doesn't doesn't make a distinction between what's right and what's wrong. For the capitalists, everything's expediency. So, therefore, what they do, they do simply not only because they can do it, because they feel like they have to in order to, to ensure, you know, uh, potential gains. And so, therefore, this kind of ruthlessness that you're talking about is nothing new in terms of the application of capitalism. To check this out, Brother Africa, between 2001, this is about this out. Between 2001 and 2009, under President Bush, they gathered over 70,000 bombs, particularly in countries you know, in the Middle East and in Africa, particularly Somalia. And 2009 to 2017, uh, under President Obama, they dropped over 100,000 bombs, specifically in the Middle East and North Africa, particularly in Somalia. Between 2016 to the present, the Orange Menace dropped 44,996 bombs, but, uh, particularly on the, the Middle East and uh, Somalia. So clearly, you know, in terms of this this this, this um, uh, um, antagonism toward life, it's nothing new. 
the pursuit of aim and objectives is more important than anything uh, for the capitalists. And so, therefore, they don't have a problem in terms of doing what is expedient. And if that means killing lots of people, if you talk about 350 uh, uh, um, uh, 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 decrees in terms of undermining the Venezuelan government, so be it. Do they care that you, the, the exponential uh, increase in deaths as a result of those blockades? Of course not. They don't give a damn about that. Do they care about the people that want to have the decision to eat? They don't care about that. Do they care about the people not having access to housing or shelter? They don't care about that. Do they care about the people who have access to education? They don't care about that. They don't care about that stuff. And this is what we have to understand. This is the quintessential problem that we talk about when we talk about capitalism because capitalism is amoral. It has no sense in terms of right and wrong. And these people don't have a good sense in terms of right and wrong. In fact, you, they go beyond immorality. They, these people are just of actors sociopathic. And so they don't have a problem in terms of destruction. They don't have a problem with them. They, do the, they, they, they drink their alcohol, snort their cocaine at nighttime and go to bed, and they're perfectly fine. And wake up next day and do it all over again. It doesn't bother them. It's incumbent upon the people who suffer these indignities to, to take a stand. And it's particularly important for people in positions of leadership in these countries, whether they be in Africa, the Middle East, Caribbean, Central South America, Australia, Brazil, wherever they are, to take a stand, to stand up against these kind of perceived injustices, you know, when they see them. Clearly, they, they abound all through the world, and it's incumbent upon people who uh, suffer these indignities to take a stand. You really don't have a choice. Now, I know I'm, it sounds like I'm putting a lot of responsibility on people who are, who are disempowered, and, and that's not my intent. That's not what I'm saying. My saying, I'm saying is that when the situation is so dire and so hopeless in which you don't have another resource that you're going to die anyway, then the choice between you're going to die anyway and doing something is preferable to dying and doing nothing. And that's a thing that uh, Samuel Vett in the book The Choice, he talked continually about uh, in terms of being, uh, being a viable choice when it comes to, you know, the struggle of, of everyday people, you know, trying to exist under the capitalist framework. So clearly, Brother Africa, you know, so, so it, it, I think your question you're trying to get in terms of some more, more trying to raise some more perspective, and I think in the context of capitalism, there's more perspective. In fact, when you start raising moralism in conjunction with capitalism, then already you, you can set up a question in which, you know, uh, you're wrong uh, automatically because there is no more equivalence in terms of how capitalism manifests itself. Uh, it's only expediency. So this is the problem that we have in terms of, know how capitalism exists and why it exists. Your brother Hackey and Pellis, our last uh, response or thoughts from this article, when you talk about dropping all these bombs, you know that that goes into supplying the military industrial complex and making money, you know, warring up a racket. They have to drop these bombs because the only way they can make more money is make more bombs. And the people just don't get it. it, it it's, 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 a, it's a con game, it's a scheme game. But we paying the price. The world paying the price. Not only the world's paying the price, but they are damaging the environment in the world while this bomb dropping. But they doing it because whoever make these bombs, they can't make money. Not unless you use the ones that you have produced. So you have to drop that one and produce some more. So um, we got to figure out what's going on in the schemes and things. So in panelists, in terms of tonight, we got only a few minutes. We're going to um, ask each one of y'all just make your family remarks as relates to uh, your final thoughts for tonight. So we start out with you, Brother Moses. Can you leave us all your final thoughts for tonight? Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, back in the 19th century, Karl Marx wrote Das Kapital, and he analyzed capitalism and, and what was going on. And, you know, and, and he, he, 
he started political economy and 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 revolution itself in terms of what's the the analysis and the prescription for the situation and uh so we have we 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 had uh the Paris Commune was the first attempt to impl- implement this kind of thinking uh but like um we 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 have to we have to study 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 and uh, as Lenin said and turn ourselves into communists uh um the the road the road is is, is long and and and, and twists and turns but but I think you know someday the situation in the u s will change for the better the working class will will rally itself i i believe um anyway, having said that good night thank you brother Moses for your contribution to today's program. And let's go with Brother Anthony. Your thoughts tonight, Brother Anthony, your final thoughts. My final thoughts is that it's important that the oppressed people of the world organize and unite. But the first step is uh, organization, permanent organization, and political education. We have to become informed, and we have to take control of the education of our youth, and uh, the ultimate solution is the uh, is uh, the smashing of imperialism uh, in all of it, all of its forms worldwide. But the first step is for all people to be organized, and there's no excuse for not being in an organization. Uh, to learn more about the All African People's Revolutionary Party (GC). Please visit our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org, or you can call us at 202-246-4896. Thanks for having me. We thank you, Brother Anthony, for your contribution to today's program. Final thoughts, Brother Hackey, for tonight. Your final thoughts. Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, first, African uh, Amer- excuse me, African Awareness is doing a uh, first annual Pan African International Cult- uh, Festival of Culture. This takes place Sunday, October 27th. Uh, for more information, give us a call at 804-549-7492 or early code 202-71495 or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two, at gmail.com. So we, we encourage people to come out and in, in, in participate in the festival. Uh, because we're hoping to be one of one of many uh, for the future. Uh, second thing, Brother Africa, um, you know, uh, there's a African Awareness Association doing a solid tour to Cuba. This trip takes place October 31st to November 6th. Uh, for more information, of course, give us a call 804-549-7492 or area code 202-714-9435 or email us at African Awareness Association, number two, at gmail.com. We encourage you to go to Cuba firsthand and see for themselves the model that is known as Cuba and the great things it does in terms of humanity. Uh, my final statement, Brother Africa, is that, you know, the situation is very, very critical. You know, recently the U.S. has decided uh, to hit the European Union uh, uh, with a, 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 a large sum of, uh, of, uh, of, of uh, tariffs simply because of unfair trade advantages, supposedly. The European Union, in response, uh, is taking the U.S. to court in terms of untrade uh, of uh, practices. 
And so, therefore, all this underscores just how precarious the, 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 the uh, global economic system is. Uh, one of the things, when we talk about all of these uh, tariffs that are taking place, is this has a deleterious, very negative impact on the well-being you know, of the people right here in America. And the thing is that when it, we, have to, we have to ask ourselves, you know, as the situation deteriorates, as jobs become increasingly scarce, as wages continue to fall, as people don't have access to shelter and, and to shelter in homes, the question is, what are people to do? Uh, one of the things that clearly being a human being, one of the things you seek to do is survive. That's what human beings do. And as such, they understand that as well. And so their position is that you may respond because you are a human being, but, then, but understand that in your response, our response is going to be, we'll shoot you down. So given this reality, the question is, what are we going to do in terms of as, as community, as a people? What are we going to do in terms of preparing for the inevitable? Uh, we got a lot of work cut out for us. Um, first and foremost, we have to understand precisely what is going on and kind of change that's taking place and how those changes are going to impact our lives. And as always, I encourage people to unravel the matrix because without unraveling the matrix, there's no conceivable way to understand the obstacles that we're up against. You haven't said that, Brother Africa. You have a good night. I'd like to thank you, Brother Haki, for your contribution to today's program. And to our listening audience, we'd like to make a couple of additions to um, some of the announcements that Brother Haki just stated. For those interested going on the tour, you are reminded that to find the color time or date time is the 16th. So roughly you have a few more days left to respond. And for the upcoming Pan-African Johnson Festival that will take place in Richmond, Virginia, uh, we are calling on your support. If you can support these events, we actually will make your contribution by Cash App, by dialing Cash App, use the number 804-319-9289, Cash App 804 Three one nine nine two eight nine. We will greatly appreciate it. And this is a event because of all Africans. It's a day for Africa for us to come together to learn, discuss, and to strategize how we can move forward collectively as a people. Come on out. It's October twenty seventh. October twenty seventh from eleven to six thirty at Afro Congo, thirty three oh two Willsboro Road in Richmond, Virginia, two three two three one. It's an occasion that you will never forget. So to report both of these events, and last but not least, we just would like to say to you that remember, Pan-Africanism is the key. We set our African free. We must fight for a unified, liberated, socialist Africa. The problems that African people are facing on a daily basis are directly related to our disconnect, disconnectedness, related to our inability to own and control our territory, our home, Africa, and our dividedness. So we need to come together one and realize we are one people, one aim, one goal, one destiny. And we can do this once we are organized. So again, we thank you for allowing us to come to your home this evening. This is Africa on the Move, and we remind you that we'll see you next week, same time, same place. And remember, you should always strive to go forward, Apple, backward, Apple, and don't let nobody create a scenario where you have to go to war and fight for them. Don't be no Buffalo soldier. Because what is war is good for? You're only for the rich and wealthy. We'll see you next week. This is Brother Apple. One, two, yeah. What is good for? Absolutely. Nothing. Uh-huh.
Thank you for your welcome. We have been allotted uh, half an hour, and uh, within this half an hour, we are to explain some of the lessons of the movement of the 60s and uh, its relationships to the 80s and relevance to the 21st century. I have picked about uh, five areas that I, I have picked about five areas which I would like to uh, discuss. The first lesson that we can come to look from the 60 and gain is the understanding that the statement made by Abraham Lincoln is a true statement. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. This statement can be understood within the context of United States imperialism and its role in the late 50s. In the late 50s, based on the resolutions passed at the 5th Pan-African Congress in 1945, a decision was made that Africans the world over must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960, Within 15 short years of this conference, over 230 million Africans were to gain independence. Swiftly following in that wake, the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement, and of course, the United States of America itself, beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery boycott, came to show mass movements everywhere. 
The American capitalist system, in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa, was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers, that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood. History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. That's if we're to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously, and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance. All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous. Certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings, like animals of the lower form, have instincts. Human beings, unlike animals of the lower form, have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s, the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they are, served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, or rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time, but it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. In Miami, we're oppressed, just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> 
And one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses, in drawing lessons from the 60s, must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle. We say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall, and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly, as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. <laughs> this aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. In order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. In order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, when we come to correct the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who, once having made gains, are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, 
We must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. That was life. Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly if one is here for revolution and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in any society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in a society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. Thus, from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students, joined with the masses of the people, came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus, we must not confuse ourselves. The job of students to clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers, and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. Capitalism is a system based on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. 
Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masses of their people. Thus, that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. <clears throat> Uh, thus, students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood, and the students going to spark these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area. The 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area, and as a mobilized area, there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the basis of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did, and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality. Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that, power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling uh, for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them, but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when we, look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the, power of the, the ability to organize our people. Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. If one would go back to the history of the South in this country immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know us Africans, we just love anything anybody. We just ran into the party. <laughs> we filled the party of the populist. We did work for the populist. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, 
When the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the Populist Party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples will be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have everywhere played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the error? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of, the labor union. We had interests with the church groups, all of them. They were all, all for our interest. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest and your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interests of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interests as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see at the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be, uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions, one must really have coalitions based on interest. I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the 60s, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed, it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus, the slogan which Snick gave to them was a simple one. Hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hands in hands with us for, for struggles all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. Consequently, since Africans, assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests are. Thus, there's no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people. First, we must become organized. 
It is for this reason that we're held in such contempt by the Democratic Party, because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside the there, with one fighting against the other, simply because we have not organized ourselves properly. It is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us. <coughs> Coalitions then can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are. What then are the relevancy for the 90s? Revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world, this is clear. And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the conditions are worse today than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, we didn't have to deal with three million homeless. And not only that, the very objective conditions put the people into contradictions with their own instinctive knowledge. Every man and woman in America, even the most unconscious man or woman in America, knows that America has enough wealth to feed and clothe three million homeless. It's a question of the will of the people. Consequently, the objective conditions we say are higher, but these objective conditions are higher with also another rising factor, the rising consciousness of the people. The enemy tries everywhere through their mouthpiece, the mass media, to make it appear as if the people's consciousness is not growing, as if it stopped. This is stupidity. The consciousness of the people must forever grow. And some of us become confused, not even understanding how it manifests itself. The other day, having a discussion with an elderly man, he came to say to me, Kwame Ture, you always up on the college campus with our students. I said, oh yes, I work with them all the time. He said, uh, they are more unconscious. They're so unconscious, they're more unconscious than you were when you were a student. I said, never. He said, yes. I said, no, if they're more unconscious than we were, our work was in vain in the 60s. He said, no, I'm telling you, they're more unconscious than you are. I said, no, they cannot be. He said, if you go up on the college campus and talk to them, they know nothing about Martin Luther King, they know nothing about Malcolm X. I said, that's correct. We don't teach them. But one thing is certain, you cannot put them on the back of a bus. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. Of course. Of course. As he was, he went on the back of the door. <laughs> Once history is made, it cannot be unmade. The job of the enemy is to push the people back. Once we broke out of slavery, they did everything possible to push us back into slavery. No, sharecropping, yes, but not slavery. Since the 60s, they've been doing everything else to push us back. But once a man or a woman has learned something, as Sigmund Freud has scientifically demonstrated, it never leaves the mind even if he thinks he's forgotten it. And once the people have learned something through struggle, never can they forget it. Consequently, the struggles of the 60s must be, un must, you must understood, are already ingrained in the culture of the people, making them more determined to fight, not less. If you come to look properly at America, we say it is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. In the 1960s, and we must show here the rising level of political consciousness, if you want to see the rising level of political consciousness in this country, don't look to the left, look to the right. The right in America today are involved in activities which in the 1960s they considered to be communist. If you would look properly at America today, you would see the conditions are more ripe. In the 60s, the progressive forces were facing the government and the right wing, which were fighting for status quo. 
today the right wing is not with the government. It's against the government. It's fighting the government. You have the right fighting the government and the left fighting the government. The possibility of change becomes easier, even though the right is not fighting for the same change the left is fighting for. That's understood. But the fact that both of them are fighting against the government makes the possibility of change much easier. And we say if you want to see the rising level of consciousness, look to the white right in this country. Where they disagree with busing, they burn buses. Where they disagree with abortion, they bomb clinics. Thus they themselves have come to demonstrate it, the use of violence as a potent force in arriving at a political objective. Everywhere the conditions for revolution are more ripe today than ever before. And in all of this is of course the rising consciousness of the people. The younger generation of Africans in this country, the youth, really believe that everything in America they have a right to. They believe it as a result of the struggles of the 60s. When they come up against a wall, there's going to be a serious explosion in this country. That explosion cannot be a repetition of the 60s. Indeed, history never repeats itself, even though bourgeois scholars never stop harping this song. <laughs> Nothing repeats itself, but people, however, can repeat their mistakes. Yes. And of course, once you repeat a mistake, it is more grave than the first time around. The lessons then must be clear. There is no question and you must in no way lose faith in the masses of the people. It is they and they alone who make revolution, not their petty bourgeois spokesmen who betray them everywhere. And the conditions of the masses are worse today than they were in the 60s. These masses must have changed and will have changed by any means necessary. The final point here. The final point then. You must not become confused by the American capitalist system which holds up betrayers of the people's struggle as representatives of the people. In any army in the world, if you desert, you should get shot. It's a law. Certainly you must be shot. And if you volunteer for an army, you should be shot twice. <laughs> of course. Of course. You volunteer for the people's army. The people go to fight. They're ready to fight. You say, I'm leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? But if you will look at our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masses must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America, they say, our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. 
For the African masses everywhere, the clear poise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we, who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we, who knowing that the people will always be free, we, understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor. We're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down. We're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you.
If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine. Palestine, needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs Palestine, Palestine needs our love. Needs there seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice, that's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs, our love. needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. That's up. Some That's his real name, Loki. Loki is not his real name, surprisingly enough. It's an important line there. I'm all about peace and love. Yeah. Okay. They're calling him a terrorist. Him a terrorist. Okay. One nation in the world has over a thousand military bases. Can you guess who? It's. Um, uh, let me give you a hint. Cutter. It is not Luxembourg. It's not just Muslims that that oppose your imperialism. He's going to tell you who it is. Lumumba was democracy. Most deck. Allende. There you go. Okay, so so this is the rapper. All right, that mm-hmm. is music. Bust a beat for me. Right? All right, sure.
President just bombed an African country like
I make them scream bloody murder. Let's meet at the White House. Run in and turn the lights out. Man, they treat it like a trap house. These motherfuckers never take the trash out. They just cash out and mash out. Nigga, take your drugs and pass out. Niggas love to go that fast route. I see you when your black ass get out. Homie, you play too much. Why these devils, they doing way too much. Watch most of them, won't say too much. Why they steady planning, God knows what. That's why I roll with the real ones. Real ones, trying to reach millions. Real ones, trying to make billions. Real ones, dressed like civilians. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Arrest the president. Yeah. 